An ancient African proverb claims that it takes a whole village to raise a child. This proverb can be certainly exploited to justify any number of unworthy agendas, but standing on its own, it makes a valid point. In fact, the more communally oriented worldview prevalent on the African continent has something to teach us who are nearly blinded by Western individualism. But what this proverb does not address is what kind of a village a village needs to be in order to raise a child well. There are villages that raise their children to deceive and to hate and to murder. There are villages that raise their children in an environment of neglect, and there's something that's learned there as well. It takes a whole community to raise a child, but it takes a healthy community to raise a child well. In like manner, a local church forms a spiritual community which Jesus has designed for the nurture of God's children. We are a family, we are a community in which we are to be encouraged in the faith. We are saved from our lawless idolatry, saved by Christ from God's just judgment against us as sinners for those that have come to saving faith. And when we repent of our sin and place our faith in the message that Jesus died in my place to pay the penalty of my sin and rose victoriously from the dead, when I trust that message, I am joined together with other believers in the body of Christ That body, that new community, is called then to build itself up in love in the context of biblically ordered local churches. And if a local church is going to function then as Jesus intends for it to function, it must maintain its spiritual health and vitality by keeping itself pure by honoring the truth of God's Word. That community must work to be a holy, healthy community that has the moral fiber to nurture the growth of God's children. So community is not enough. The spiritual health of the church is essential for the building up of the members of that body. I think it is this conviction which really pulsates through Paul's uh, discussion with the Thessalonian believers in the second epistle to them. If you'll make your way there, the second Thessalonians chapter 3. This conviction pulsates throughout this section. Last week we carefully considered Paul's instruction to them and particularly the introduction to this correction that he's about to deliver at verse 6 of chapter 3. The first five verses really being an introduction into that discussion. So if if you'll remember 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1 starts with the phrase, Finally, brothers. Finally. The introduction to a final and very important word of authoritative instruction for the church that will take up the rest of this chapter. Before delivering that hard message, remember how Paul prepares for this. Paul has patiently prepared them for this rebuke. He has identified with them as partners in the Gospel. 
and he's chosen to focus positively on what is right before he launches into addressing what is wrong. Displaying all the gentleness and care of a man who's seeking to disarm a bomb. Remember it again. First, he says, finally, brothers, verse 1, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. As he prepares to rebuke, to correct, to instruct them, he starts with, pray for me. Pray for me and my endeavors in the Gospel. Then at verse 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Confidence here that as they face temptation, as He is preparing to correct them, that God will guard them against Satan. And then, verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Remember there, it's something like the teacher saying, I have confidence no one will cheat on this test. It's a gentle imperative, a gentle command here. But he's saying, I, I, I have confidence in you that you will do what we command, and that command is going to come then in verse 6. But first, he breathes a prayer for them. May the Lord direct your heart to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And now, he says, now, we command you. So the word command at the end of verse 4 is going to link now with verse 6, and we read what the command is. Beginning at verse 6 then, as Paul has patiently worked his way here to prepare them to receive this correction, He commands the church to separate itself from disobedient members. This is a countercultural statement. But he says this very pointedly in verse 6. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So Paul issues this command with such meticulous care, I think in part because the situation is a volatile one. He loves this church. Like a father loves his children, he's cared for this church, he says, as as a mother cares for her children. But their relationship is strained by the fact that Paul has given them careful instructions and the church has not listened. Some within the church are rejecting this counsel and this instruction. They've disregarded it. Some members of the assembly continue, he says here, to walk in idleness. Now that Greek word means out of line, and it always has the notion of causing some sort of disruption. Parents of little children particularly understand this. Kids get out of line sometimes. Actually, big ones can too, and so can we as adults. But we get out of line, don't we? And that causes disruption. That's the idea here. But because the kind or the species of disruption that was caused by these believers was one where they weren't working, our English translations often translate this very difficult word, idle. So don't get the sense that they were simply lazy. They were simply not working. But what they were doing was causing disruption within the assembly on a number of levels, and we'll come to that. But this pattern of behavior was disrupting the internal health and the public testimony of the church. 
This pattern behavior was in direct disobedience to Paul's instructions. And it's those pieces that we must grasp. He speaks of the tradition that you received from us. What was the tradition? Now we think tradition, not Christmas tree or something like that tradition, but tradition in the sense of teaching and instruction. I talked to you about this before. And you've rejected what I've said. Let's go back to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just to remember what he had said earlier. Now concerning brotherly love, 1 Thessalonians 4.9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. What's the theme? The assembly loving one another. Right? Quite clearly. Notice where he takes us. Verse 10, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. He wants them to be sanctified in love, to be growing and increasing in their relationship with one another in love. Now part of that, as he speaks of that general notion, is this matter, verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. So urging the church to grow in love for one another, he now issues this corrective. There were some that were not working within the assembly. Why is that? Why were they refusing to work? We cannot determine precisely why this was the case. Many argue that they were waiting for the return of Christ. And they were basically saying there's no reason to work. Jesus is coming back. Now there are people even today who are doing that. But that don't, I don't know that that's the case because Paul never brings up the return of Christ. Never even hints at the return of Christ in this instruction. Perhaps a bit closer to the reality is this client-patron relationship that was integral to the Greco-Roman culture. We don't know for sure, but patrons, we do know, were wealthy individuals who supported any number of clients as a gesture of civic responsibility and goodwill. The government would not provide nearly what our government might provide by way of such goodwill and welfare. And so individuals would step forward and they would provide for those in need within their community. Remember that scene that many times the clients would even come to the uh, doorway of the home of the patron and, and sing this individual's praises before the start of the day as they went on their way, making their living off what the patron provided. And the patron went on his way being a wealthy individual within the assembly or within the, in the uh, community. Well, we can't entirely know why, but somehow, if you're not working, you have got to be leeching off of someone. You're taking your food out of somebody else's pocket in one way or another. That's what was happening. Now, we have to put ourselves in this scene. This is a church, a fairly small church, undoubtedly, as these are all new believers in Thessalonica, and there are individuals within the assembly that are living according to this pattern. Somehow they are drawing money from others and being supported without going to work. 
there are two results that are listed here. The laziness of these individuals was a poor testimony to the watching world. This is not why Jesus saved them. To sit around and gain wealth from others who are giving them money because they refuse to do anything. Secondly, their laziness was producing a dependence on others to supply what they could just as well supply for themselves. So this is an issue of what? It's an issue of love. They were putting responsibilities on other people to do what they could be doing that was unloving. And so Paul corrects them. I think just at this point, let's stop and consider how important it is that the church was not to ignore or merely tolerate what these members were doing. The church had knowledge that there was a minority within the assembly who were living this way. The responsibility was not to just look the other way. The responsibility was not to grumble behind closed doors. You believe these people? I sure wouldn't want to live like that. Would you want to live like that? I can't believe that they're doing this. No. It's not to grumble behind their back. What is the call? Going back to 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. What does Paul say? What is the right response to them? He says in verse 6 that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. So they're disobeying the instruction that the apostle had given. They continue to refuse to work. And the response of the assembly is to keep away from them. This is nothing less than a call to break fellowship with another professing believer within the body of Christ. And that's a hard thing to consider. But the warm covenantal fellowship that is to characterize the relationship between local church members was to be suspended. There needs to be a different relationship with these individuals now because of their continual rejection of proper counsel and apostolic authority. And what does that say to us? I mean, just we don't really have categories in our culture for such a thing i mean this is you just stamp lawsuit all over this that's how that's how we would look at such a thing to have nothing to do with someone to disfellowship someone on the basis of how they're choosing to feed themselves that sounds discriminatory to our ears but i think the principle we need to gain here in this instruction is that a healthy church is one in which fidelity to god's word the holiness of God's people and our testimony to the loss is prioritized over people's feelings. Now, Paul is not stomping all over these people. By any means, he's very gentle in the way that he brings this rebuke. But, this has to be corrected. Paul is not being unloving. He loves the gospel and he loves the church too much to tolerate sinful behavior within the assembly. If sin cannot be treated and corrected with a gracious rebuke, then it needs to be cut out of the body to keep it healthy. This is of utmost importance. So, this difficult command, carefully introduced in verses 1-5, through is this. To keep away from, to separate yourself from, to disfellowship 
any brother who walks in idleness and continues to refuse this counsel. He supports that command by looking to the past. He looks first of all at his earlier example, verse 7, for, here's a ground for it, the support for what he's commanded, you yourselves know how, we ought, how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. To go directly to principle without saying more at this moment, a spiritual shepherd must live what he teaches. None does. Ultimately. But there should be a pattern of behavior that evidences that what he teaches, what he teaches is how he lives. In fact, how he lives is often a more influential sermon than any of the sermons that he preaches. This needs to be at the very heart and core of any seminary training of individuals preparing for ministry. To make clear to them that they understand ideas are important. Doctrinal accuracy is of utmost importance. But with this is the absolute importance of living what you teach. And as we have the opportunity from time to time to train young men seeking a place in pastoral ministry, this is a consistent emphasis. How you live is of utmost importance. Paul is not talking theory here. He is not merely telling others what to do from his high horse. He lived this among them. With full integrity and all sincerity, he can point back to his own example. I have brought the Gospel to you. I am discipling you. Think back on my life. Was this how I lived? Not at all. He speaks here of toiling and laboring to the point of exhaustion night and day, refusing to live off the donations of others. And what was it that motivated him? So we see here in verses 7 and 8 what motivated him at the very end of verse 8 that we might not be a burden to any of you. What's the motivation? Yeah, that's love. I'm not going to put on you a responsibility that I can handle myself. He did not want his needs to become a weight of responsibility thrown onto the shoulders of others. So out of love for others, he worked hard, long hours in order to meet his own needs. His example went well beyond what might have been expected. For as he explains in verse 9, it was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. What he's saying is that I was pouring out my life and energies to bring the Gospel to you, to teach the Word of God to you, to nurture and help and counsel you as you grew in the faith. I had the right in that labor to receive income from you, but I said no. I'm not going to take that income, but I'm going to work for this express purpose, to leave an example for these new believers how to work hard. How to work diligently and to supply our own needs. He was working two jobs. He had a full-time consuming effort to minister as a spiritual shepherd of this flock for a time. And he was working on the side to provide 
financial resources for himself. You remember my example. That's how I lived among you. I'm not telling you to do something I didn't do. This is how we should live. People who freeload and leech off of others do not reflect the character of Jesus who gave Himself up for us all. Jesus became poor so that through His poverty we might become rich. He taught us that it is more blessed to give than to receive. The freeloaders among the Thessalonians were living a life that said the exact opposite of this, and so they were denying the Gospel. By the way they were making their money, they were denying the Gospel of Christ. And this had to end. Paul points back to his example. He secondly points back to his earlier teaching. Verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So we have Paul's example of labor and toil and work. And we have his words, if somebody doesn't work, they should not eat. So to the assembly he had taught them, don't give food to someone who refuses to work. Now there will be needs, and it is right to give food to those who are in need who are unable to work for whatever reason. But do not give money to those who say, I just want to take from others. Don't do that. If a person can earn a living, then a person needs to earn a living. But there were people there in the Thessalonian church who refused to busy themselves with work, and they spent their time rather busying themselves in disruptive ways. Which we read in verse 11 as he continues on and now brings the instruction to a point. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You see the play on words there. These people were not only lazy, they were disruptive. When they should have been busy, they were flitting about as busy bodies, getting into everybody else's business, spending their free time, because someone else was paying their way, getting all involved and disruptive in the lives of others. Their time was spent not providing food for their families, but fueling controversy. Paul did not decide to mind his own business here, does he? He doesn't instruct the Thessalonian church, you mind your own business here. He says, no, this has to stop. It does not accord with the Gospel. And it's not right. It does not create a healthy community where truth can be taught and godliness can be nurtured. And so he contends for their reformation. Because their conduct conflicted with some of the very reasons Jesus saved them. And so he commands them in verse 12, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Here he puts a clear point on it, a direct rebuke. Remember his word in verse 4, as he says there, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you, are, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Now he turns this in a much sharper way and says, I command you to stop. 
Stop freeloading off of others, and I command you to work quietly and to earn your own living. Do you remember that word quietly from 1 Thessalonians 4? The same word was used there. It doesn't mean that they work without making any noise. The idea of quietly is, has the idea of inner calm that joyfully submits to the life of work. God created us to work. Work is a good thing. Toil's not a good thing. That's part of the curse. That's going to go away someday. But work is something we were created to do. I, I, get, I, I say this often, but I get the willies when I hear these songs that come across like we're going to sing for all eternity. That I, I, it just doesn't work for me. I, I just wouldn't look forward to singing forever and ever and ever and never stopping singing. That's not what we're going to be doing for all eternity. I mean, after 4,500 years of singing, you might kind of want a break, don't you think? Well, we are not, we're going to be doing a lot of singing. But throughout eternity, I believe, I'm fully convinced we're going to be doing a lot of work. It'll be free of toil. But we will be subduing the universe to the glory of God as we carry on work forever. Work isn't the evil. It's the toil that comes with the curse that's the bad part. That curse will end. And work will go on to the glory of God forever. And we will sing But to work is none other than to reflect our creative purpose, our creation in the image of God who worked to bring this world into existence. So work is good. People should work. They should work quietly. That is, they should submit to the task of working, knowing that this is part of why we were made. Paul now shifts his attention after this rebuke of those who aren't working. He now shifts his attention to address those in the assembly who were working. And he encourages them in verse 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And they might look around at the loafers and say, I want to do that. I want to eat off of somebody else. I don't want to go to work. No, no, don't get discouraged in doing good. Keep at it. Keep doing what's right. Keep doing good. Don't lose heart or grow weary, but keep working hard. That's your duty before the Lord. And after this admonition then in verse 13, now he's going to address them about how they are to respond to those who continue to disobey this counsel. So in verse 12, he addresses those who aren't working, get to work. Stop leeching off of others. But now think of this. How is the rest of the assembly to relate to those people who won't listen and continue to walk in disregard of God's truth? Verse 14, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, what does he say? Ignore them? Look the other way? Talk behind their backs? He says, Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. We don't have categories for that instruction. So we're going to have to work counterculturally to understand what he's saying here. So it's pretty easy, the first part of the verse, there's this instruction to work as to adorn the gospel of Christ before a watching world and to love the body. That much we can see. We should get to work and earn our own living. 
But what does he mean when he says, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him? If we're thinking from terms of Western individualism, we're thinking in our day, you're walking in the aisles of the church down the hallway and that person comes and you kind of look the other way and ignore them. I'm going to have nothing to do with them. Don't think in those terms. We have to think in terms of Pauline writings. When he says have nothing to do with them, what that means is to disfellowship them from the body. He uses this very same phrase in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 11. There he speaks of one who needs to be removed from among you. To be expelled from the fellowship and the environment of the local church. Have nothing to do with him is a phrase that's used in that context. And I think that's the meaning here. They were to act as a community to purify their community by removing the offending members. Now there's grace, there's patience, there's time, but it comes to a certain place where a person refuses to do what is right, is disruptive to the assembly. Paul says that has to be dealt with. And so I take this to be a reference to church discipline, not to a communal shaming of members, a member who continues to walk in fellowship with the church. Some would take it that way. We're just to ignore them. We're going to pretend they're not there. Uh, They walk in the door and we look the other way. We don't shake their hand. We don't make eye contact. We have nothing to do with them. We don't talk to them. They walk around among us. They come to church. They're doing all the things that we're doing except for maybe the Lord's Supper, but we just ignore them. I don't think that's the point. And some would argue that quite strongly that that is the point and that we should practice this i think it'd be very unworkable on some levels which isn't the reason that we would reject it but i think rather the idea here is that this is not a separate stage of discipline that paul just fails to develop or explain i think what he's doing is linking up with everything else that he said about church discipline have nothing to do with them means that they're separated from the assembly what's the desired result that they may be shamed That is, that the guilt of sin would come to bear upon them. They'd understand their sin. A healthy local church, then, is one in which the members are capable of seeing. Here's a member who's disobeying the Word of God. This is someone who's living in disobedience to Scripture. Now, we all violate the Word of God. But we repent. We seek to grow. Here's someone, however, that is continuing to walk in disobedience to Scripture. We need to have the love and the courage to say gently but firmly, as Paul does here, you are living in violation of God's will and you must repent. A healthy church is capable of doing that. Applying proper pressure in order to influence an erring member to do what's right. Sometimes it is the church's clear thinking and honest assessment that graciously and justly shames the wayward member into seeing his or her sin and changing course. And again, when we hear of shaming someone, we think litigation, lawsuit. This is doing something horrible to someone. It's really no different than what loving parents would do with children who are continuing to walk in disobedience. There must be correction. And so there must be correction within the context of the church here. 
That's not harsh and unloving unless you're harsh and unloving. It is loving and gracious to extend to a person the privilege to stand in righteousness when they will one day stand before Christ to give an account. Indeed, repentance and restoration to fellowship with the church is always the goal. As verse 15 makes clear, this shame is not to keep the person in shame. The shame is to place conviction upon them so that, verse 15, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This would link up with what we read elsewhere of the restoration of the erring brother. Not an enemy. That is, there's hope for restoration here. But as a brother, commonly viewed by some to say a Christian brother within the assembly, I think it really is just saying like you would work with a sibling. You continue to relate to them with tender regard and concern and compassion. Occasionally, there has been some opposition from some who pass through our church or know about it from the outside that how evil it is that we kick people out of the church. Please understand, this church never has and by the grace of God will never kick someone out of the church. What we do is we remove a person from fellowship with open arms saying, return to fellowship by obeying the Word of God. That's not kicking somebody out of the family. That's putting someone without of the fellowship to say, we want you to be restored. We always have one intention in such discipline, and that is to see the person repent and walk in fellowship. And when they do, we must, by the command of Christ, forgive them and restore them to fellowship. And we have, by the mercy of God. Never is someone simply kicked out of the family. They're rebuked. They may be, 1 Corinthians 5, in direct obedience to that passage, set outside the assembly, removed from among us but always with open arms to say, come back. Come back to walk with Christ as you should. Now again, I think this is a reference to removal of a member from the fellowship, and I'll give three brief reasons. First, this is an unrepentant sinner living in ongoing opposition to spiritual authority. You've got someone in the church that's living that way. They know what the truth is. They know what God's Word says, hear what the apostolic message is, and they're saying, I'm not going to do it. I will not live in submission to what Scripture teaches. How can such a person be permitted to walk in fellowship with the church, even if they're just ignored? They're out of fellowship with the church. Secondly, all covenantal responsibilities to love and edify this member of the body are suspended. We've talked through these two books often about the health of the church and our mutual responsibilities to one another to build each other up in the faith. How do you relate to this person? Have nothing to do with him. Keep away from him. Those are incompatible commands for one who is part of a body that is to edify itself in love. Thirdly, this same individual is leading a lifestyle that contradicts the transformational power of the gospel. How can a church continue to confirm that this one is a genuine believer? 
And I should add, fourthly, I just thought of this, but actually going back to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 11, the same phrase is used in both, and there's no question it's church discipline in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. So for these reasons, I think we have here the removal of an individual from the assembly due to disobedience to God's Word with the goal of restoration. As I've said before about this passage, I mean, this just doesn't work in our culture. This is so counterculture. We don't even have categories to filter such kind of conversation. We need to get such categories, or we won't be the church that Jesus wants us to be. There's no virtue in simply being a community. We have to be the kind of community that Jesus wants us to be so that we can truly nurture spiritual health. And what we see here as we look through this passage, first of all, is the importance of authority in the assembly. Here again, this really messes with the American way of thought. Why do you go to a church? You go to a church because you have this list of things you want to find there. And this church provides this, this, this. Ah, it's missing this point, but it's got this one, this one. Ah, I could be better, but this will work. And I, I think I can go to church there. It's probably the best choice that there is. That is so far removed from what the New Testament teaches. Now, understanding, of course, we do have a checklist, and, and we do have options in this culture about a church where we would attend. I, I understand all of that. But we don't understand the importance of authority. How many people look for a church and say, I want to know about the spiritual authority in this church? because I want to place myself under that authority because I know that's Christ's design for me. But we don't think that way very naturally. And I can tell you, I've never fielded a question anything like that when somebody asked about this church. I've fielded good questions and I've fielded really dumb questions. But we just don't think in those terms. The Apostle Paul does, the New Testament does. Now we have to understand, let's get this right. Within those first five verses, this is a gentle authority. It's a gracious authority. But as verse 12 makes clear, it is able to stand up to sin. Refusing the counsel of a pastor who is seeking to rightly understand Scripture is foolishness. Unless it's clear that a pastor's dishonoring the Lord as an elder would speak and counsel and encourage with authority within the assembly, there should be a responsiveness to that on our parts. And on my part, as I would submit to the counsel of others. It is important to understand authority. And I rejoice to be within an assembly where genuine biblical authority is exercised. Secondly, we see here the exercise of discipline in the pursuit of holiness and spiritual health. That should be quite clear to us as we consider this passage. But let's also remember, this is a hard word, but most of this work is very positive, falling under what we call formative church discipline. We encourage, we pray for one another, we build one another up in the faith, we enter into mutual confession, rightly acknowledging our own sinfulness and failures and asking others for prayer and encouragement as we deal with sin. We're all sinners. There's nobody here who's not. But what we do is we help each other pursue holiness 
positively, then when it comes to the need, it's real and it's genuine because here's someone who's walking out of the faith, walking away from Christ. Our task is then to order the environment of Eden Baptist Church expecting that people will change and holding one another to account to submission to the truth of God's Word. That is our authority, ultimately, is His Word. Yes, there are people who very much criticize this assembly for practicing such discipline. There are people from time to time who leave not because they've been disciplined, but because they don't like this. I understand that. I have to fight my own bent and my own nature as I think about these things. But at the end of the day, we don't answer to people's opinions. We answer to our judge, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, I appeal to you as an assembly, as I appeal in my own heart, we need to be faithful to this way forward. This beautiful balance of grace and patience and mercy and an offer of forgiveness that is balanced on the other side with a willingness to say that sin is sin and the church is not a place for harboring sin. It's a place for repenting of sin and changing and growing. It is not a place where we harbor it and look the other way. That's not what we were designed to be. And in the end of the day, we have to stand before Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, and give account to Him for how we operated as a church. We are the display window through which a lost world sees the Gospel of Christ. If that window is getting all mucked up by the way someone's living, They're living in such a way that the world looks and says, I don't need Jesus to live like that. I live like that already. If that's the message that's being sent, then we need to intervene. Call that person to account, as Paul does to these who are lazy and leeching off of others. And then when there's a failure to respond, as there was in the first book, the second book of more direct confrontation and a call for separation. This is essential. How would this look in our day? I I don't know. I I don't know. There certainly is not in one sense a patron-client relationship unless it's somebody who is on welfare because they simply refuse to work. There's reasons for governmental support. There's reasons for a church to support people when they're between jobs, unable to be employed, or they're physically incapable with age uh, the, these kinds of reasons. Of course there's a place to help people and supply uh, their living. But maybe the closest we get to this actual situation would be, imagine if this happened, that within our church, 25% of the people were living on welfare and they were fully capable of handling a job. They just knew by working the system, they didn't have to work because the government would give them the money. That's something of the situation here. The culture's different, the scene is different, but that would be something what it's like. And I'd like us to ask ourselves as a church this question. If that was going on in our assembly, and it's not by any means, but if it was, if there were individuals that came into our church, identified with our church, and they were taking money from the government, refusing to work, what would we do? 
Do we ignore them? Do we just say, hey, that's just America. It's the way that it is. It's okay. Do we talk behind their backs? Sure not how I'd want to live. Can't believe these people do this, but whatever. I No, you have to address that. Because to take money from the government simply to make money and to refuse to work to gain our own employment does not adorn the gospel of Christ. And that's a problem in a church. So we would need to graciously and lovingly teach, confront, steer, direct, counsel. But if individuals continue to refuse, they say, I'm not going to look for a job. I don't need to look for a job. I don't want to look for a job. I can get this money from the government. I can live just fine the way that it is. We would need to get eventually to the place where we would say to such an individual, we must remove you from fellowship with our assembly. Would we do that? Is that how we would respond as a church? Would we understand we must respond that way to honor Christ? Now that scenario, as we are constituted right now, thankfully I, don't, I can't even imagine being an issue. My concern with this church is there's a lot of people that may be working too hard sometimes. But what might it be? It may not be this particular issue, but we see somebody who's walking in sin and continuing to refuse to submit to the Word of God. We must have the capacities to align ourselves with the counsel of God's Word or we are playing a game. It's just an act. And we're saying to the world that is watching out there, we're Christians in our society We're Christians by way of culture, but when it comes to the transformational power of Jesus Christ, we can take that or leave it. That's not a healthy environment where where genuine believers are nurtured in the faith. We need to address sin. We need to be willing to look at sinful behavior or unbecoming behavior that detracts from the Gospel and to say, this must change. I think we have that strength as a church. We've demonstrated that strength as a church. It's not an easy thing to do. But we must continue to deepen our roots and feed those roots to be the kind of community that Christ wants us to be. So that unbelievers who see us from the outside or come in among us will say, Jesus has changed those people. They live differently. They address life differently. They don't excuse sin. They turn from it. And they're seeking to help each other grow. And that those who come who do know the Lord will find here an environment in which God's children can grow. That's the vision we want to have and pursue. By the grace of God, we will. Let's bow for prayer. Father, there may be among us one who does not see the light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that You'd break into the darkness with the light of Christ. That they would realize that disobedience to the Gospel is a way to destruction. And I ask that they, as sinners who violate Your law, would come to see in You the source of forgiveness and grace. And for those of us who know You, I pray that as a church we would take this encouragement this instruction, maybe in some respects this rebuke, 
and that we would grow from this consideration. We don't know what you're calling us to do in the days ahead. We don't know what you're preparing us for. But I pray that we would be faithful. And I ask that you will deepen us in these truths. We thank you for them. And we thank you to be part of a body that's not just playing church. A part of a body that seeks to take these things seriously and to seek to bend our church to image the New Testament pattern. We need your help. We fall very far short. But we ask that you'd aid us to this end for the glory of your name. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.